0: Nearly 50% of the U.S. workforce is reconsidering their career and thinking about leaving their current job. Was the pandemic the driving force behind this? What does this mean for employees right now? We're going to dive into this today as we speak with Vipula Gandhi, who is head of U.S. enterprise and managing partner at Gallup, Inc. And she also just authored a very popular article that some of you may have read called The Great Resignation is Really the Great Discontent. We talk in detail with Vipola about why people are reevaluating their current jobs, what employers need to do about it, and what the future of the workplace actually looks like. After this quick break, join Aaron, Bob, and me, Meredith Black, to chat with Vipola on reconsidering.
1: Over the past very difficult year, many people have asked themselves how can I use my skills and my talents to help out and have a meaningful impact? US Digital Response is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that connects volunteer technologists with governments to help meet the critical needs of the public. Already, more than 7,000 people have raised their hands to volunteer their time and their skills, and they've helped more than 200 communities. 36 states and territories across the U.S. address some of the challenges related to elections, unemployment benefits, food security, COVID vaccinations, and so much more. There is work to be done and impact to be made. Sound interesting? Sign up to volunteer and learn more at usdigitalresponse.org. That's usdigitalresponse.org.
2: My name is Vipula Gandhi. I am the head of U.S. enterprise business and managing partner at Gallup Inc., based out of Washington, D.C. I'm responsible for the strategy, performance, and talent of my business. And I'm absolutely passionate about leveraging human potential. I have worked in five countries and am a mother of a 13-year-old, and I love what I do.
3: Here we go. Plastic or paper? Paper. Paper. Tea or coffee? Tea. Netflix or YouTube? YouTube. Newspaper or magazine? Newspaper. Book or e-reader? E-reader. Laptop or smartphone? Smartphone. Library or coffee shop?
2: Coffee shop.
3: Office or home? Both. (laughs) (laughs) City or country? City. Reading or writing? Reading. Speaking or listening? Listening. Strategy or tactics?
2: Tactics more than strategy, but strategy too.
3: Okay. Scripted or improv
2: Improv.
3: Backpack or suitcase? Backpack. Mansion or apartment? Mansion. Yuval Harari or Malcolm Gladwell?
2: Malcolm Gladwell.
3: Sheryl Sandberg or Mark Zuckerberg?
2: Sheryl Sandberg.
3: Steve Jobs or Walt Disney?
2: Steve Jobs.
3: Shakespeare or Einstein?
2: Einstein.
3: Declaration or U.S. Constitution?
2: Declaration.
3: Poetry or prose? Prose. Beauty or wisdom? Wisdom. Nice. Well, thanks for doing that with us. And so I'm just going to jump into our first question and I'm just going to start by quoting something that you wrote in your analysis for Gallup and here we go quote a new Gallup analysis finds that 48% of America's working population is actively job searching or watching for opportunities businesses are facing a staggeringly high quit rate 3.6 million Americans resigned in May alone it's not an industry role or pay issue it's a workplace issue can you help us understand from your perspective, what you think is going on in the country right now and why so many people are leaving their jobs?
2: One thing we have to understand that pandemic has been very personal. It has affected each of us very differently. Never in our lifetimes have we experienced a financial, a social, a health anxiety at the levels we saw and are seeing actually. Now, In this time of turmoil, whether you lived in a city apartment with two young men alongside you sharing a small working space versus you had a suburban home with a dog that barked at every Amazon delivery versus you went to your holiday home in Hampton or Miami, how you dealt with pandemic is very different. Workplace experiences are important for all of us, given the amount of time we spend at work, right? Imagine that during normal times, or I call them pre-COVID times because you're never going to get back to the normal times in the future. In the pre-COVID times as well, employee experience was very important. How people felt emotionally connected to their work and thus their customers and their businesses depended on how strong those connections are. So obviously organizations cared about building those connections. Where the connections are strong, less people have intentions to look out or change a job. If those connections are weak and individuals are not happy with the experiences they are receiving for multiple reasons, they are more likely to look for jobs outside. In the pre-pandemic times as well, when we look at that, 46% of population was actually always open to looking at opportunities. That number is just under 50% right now. So you see the difference is not much However, the situation around us has changed and the intention to leave is getting converted into actually leaving at a higher pace. Now, you asked a question, Bob, you know, what's going on around us? And, you know, various words have been used like pandemic pause, a COVID clarity, and there are more multiple phases. The fact is all of us have gotten time to sit back and reflect about, what our jobs and our roles offer to us. And then we can decide, is this what we want to do for the rest of our lives? We were so busy in the pre-COVID times that we never took that pause that we had the opportunity to do that today. i make a point that the younger generation was already asking for work-life balance and pandemic only accelerated the speed at which people are demanding that. So various, whether it is somebody who decided that they were just unhappy with the grind and this is not what they wanted to do, so this is a good time to change industries, maybe you know find an industry that offers better benefits and I don't want to do the work I'm doing right now, or it is a person who took an early retirement because of great stock performance and says, I don't want to do it anymore and my health is more important, versus somebody Given the market outside, Bob, we are seeing there are more jobs open than people looking for those jobs. So some people's phones are ringing off their hooks and they are getting offers that they cannot say no to. So there is various forces around us, especially because the Delta is in its peak right now, especially just before the Delta took off. There's so many opportunities that the intention to keep looking has converted into actual quitting at a much higher rate. And the second point you made about this is not a particular level, a job, an industry issue. The fact is, workplace experiences are critical, and people today would quit if they're not getting what they need.
0: That's really interesting. I kind of want to spin this around a little bit and ask you a different side of what's happening, which is women in the pandemic, right? I think I just heard that over 5 million jobs were lost. And as a result, women lost these jobs. My question to you is, some of them probably didn't have the option. They lost their jobs. They probably haven't been able to find a career in the workforce or a job in the workforce. Do you think or do you see those jobs coming back? Are they coming back? Or how are women pivoting right now because of a result of the loss of these jobs?
2: Pre-pandemic, over the last decade or so, the stress levels in the workplace were increasing at unsustainable rates. And during pandemic, they broke all previous records. So when we say stress level is we ask individuals whether you felt stressed a lot of the day yesterday. That's the question we ask individuals globally. In the US, that percentage is really, really high, highest in the world. In North America, 57% of individuals reported being stressed yesterday. Women more than men. 62% women versus 52% men reported being stressed all of a day, day yesterday. If you don't live under a rock, you know that in our society, women are under multiple pressures, whether it's household, caregiver responsibility, and other things. In addition, some of the jobs that were lost had more women in those jobs when the pandemic struck than men because there, a lot of them were actually lower-level jobs, a lot of them entry-level and early jobs as well. So that affected women tremendously. And as a society, it is up to us to ensure that we take proactive measures to get into a better place Otherwise, our hope of getting 50 percent women in all leadership positions, whether it is governments, corporates, education or anywhere else, would be very, very difficult. So the pandemic affected women in many ways unfairly. But if we want to be the society that we aspire to be, it is up to leaders, including corporate leaders, to ensure that they do understand these stressors. And women have a lot to offer in the diversity of ideas and emotional connections. Another data point is women actually make better managers than men. So all those data points, you want to keep that in mind. It is better for the growth of our society, for the growth of the GDP, to ensure that these women are gotten back into the jobs. The other question you asked was about whether those jobs are coming back or not. This morning, actually, Joel's uh, BLS released its latest jobs report. And there are more jobs right now than people. So one of the things that has to happen is, yes, of course, the compensation has to go up, which we all know is high time. There are some jobs that don't provide living wages, and it's so unfair. So it's high time that the compensation is better. In addition, we expect a lot of automation. So we hope that some of these jobs that have lower level benefits and not effective benefits should be automated. And we have to think about where that goes. So Leaders like us have to ensure that we are pushing for the right changes and organizations to be more effective in managing women in their cadres and providing them the right opportunities. I will also make a point here really about how we manage people. You also know that women are more likely to opt for remote requirements, remote work requirements than others. And if our performance management systems are built for the 70s and the 80s, where We are judging performance based on who's in the office for how long versus actual output. Women will lose out. It's incumbent upon us to build performance management systems that are more focused on output and working anytime versus working nine to five. This half of our economic contributors can bring their best to the table.
0: That's really fascinating that you say that. And it brought another question to mind, which is, we talk about women and we talk about supporting women and giving them more opportunities to manage and being you know higher up in the corporate ladder. But I also think, and maybe you've got data to support this, but are there companies that are supporting paternity leave just as much as maternity leave? Because in order for women to go back into the workforce after having children, they need support, right? And so it's one of those things. That's why women leave their careers, right? And so do you see companies right now actually getting on board with paternity so that way the partner side of things can come in and help women from that aspect?
2: The answer is yes, but not enough. So forward-thinking companies are definitely incorporating this in their benefits and the way they look at things, but not enough are doing it, is my point here.
1: Your article alludes to this idea of discontent, that there's this pervasive discontent. And you talk about so many employees being disengaged. And the disengagement part wasn't super shocking to me because I know just personally, I hear a lot of people say like, I am bored at work or I'm not learning or growing. But that discontent thing is particularly interesting. You talk about stress as a key reason why people are resigning at record rates. But it seems like there's something more than stress, that there's like maybe a shifting value system or that people's values that they once kind of held in their brain is like, oh, this is something I believe in, but would still go to work under difficult circumstances because you know they needed to make a buck. And that is really the top of the value system for them. What's changed in people's value systems, if anything, during this pandemic?
2: Absolutely. Again, pandemic accelerated the value system change, but it was already well on its way before 2020, as millennials entered the workforce in significant numbers, we realized that what they expected from their workplaces were so significantly different from baby boomers that you couldn't just assign that to age, that these are young people and they'll change as they go along. The difference was stark. We went away from just a salary that people worked for some time ago. To something more than that, working for a purpose. I'm here for a larger reason of how I can create a positive difference in the world I live. What does my company stand for? Why does it exist? And how do my job contribute to what this world is trying to do? So that connection of moving from salary to purpose was very stark. Also, the expectations from workplace change, the employee experience expectations. It was no longer about you tell me what to do, you know, you say jump high and I say how high, it's changed to help me figure out moving away from just being satisfied with what I do to be emotionally connected to the work. Give me a coach who can help my growth, not a boss who directs and administers me, not something that you keep focusing on my weaknesses, But tell me about what am I good at and how I can make the most of what I'm good at. So these changes were felt as a millennial generation was coming in. And then because they now form a significant, more than 50% of our working population, but they also have affected other generations to this way of thinking. So the value system and change. So if you have organizations that are still working with the premise that this is 1970s and 80s and people are expecting the same things, you are going to fail in today's world. Pandemic in many ways have separated the good employers from not so good employers. And I actually foresee this demarcation continuing to be, and you will see the winners and the losers. And the winners will understand that the expectations from workplaces are different and we have to meet those expectations as we go along. To retain the talent and the stars we need
3: to grow so certainly there's a generational difference as you go from baby boomers to millennials and you're right obviously that millennials are a huge part of the workforce now gen z is actually bigger than millennials if i understand correctly and they're coming into the marketplace now you know i'm curious if you can help us understand one how gallup understands these generational differences through largely statistics, I'm guessing, but maybe there's other means as well. And then if you see differences, not merely between baby boomers and millennials, but I'm also curious what you're seeing with Gen Z as they come into the marketplace, your kids, my kids are both part of that generation. Maybe what you experience as a parent, but then also what you experience as a professional at Gallup.
2: We haven't yet done deep in-depth study of the Z generation, simply because our research you know, takes years and has the kind of data sets that others can only dream about. We are not yet there to talk about the Z generation as much as we know about the millennials. Now, we all know about the digital natives and non-natives. One thing that I would love to talk a little bit more about is this need for ongoing feedback. So imagine my child, who is a digital native versus me, the immediate feedback you get when you post something on Instagram, like how many likes you get, how many people commented on your post versus our world where, you know, annual feedback was an okay thing. Those times are over. Individuals in today's workplaces and this younger generation has also affected others. I'm a Gen X, but I feel like a millennial because I have learned and I have changed the way I think I have evolved and I have learned some of those values from the younger generation. But... This thing about ongoing feedback. Now, can you imagine our workplaces where, uh, you know, if you had a good manager who gave you a proper annual review, you know, people called you lucky because others never even received that. And you, if you had a mid-year review, man, that was the best you could have expected. Our generations today at Workforce expect ongoing feedback every turn, every twist because, and I'm going to say this a couple of times in the podcast, development is the number one driver of employee engagement as we stand today. So this ongoing conversations where I'm told things I do well, things I can do better at and effective coaching is really critical in today's world. Now, the word coach is so common in sports analogy. Everybody needs a coach in sports. We need coaches at workplaces too who can help us get better and develop along the way. The challenge is, How many of us have managers who have the ability to provide us ongoing feedback on, if not daily, then at least a weekly basis? And how many managers have the right talent, the right skills, the right knowledge to do that in a constructive way where you are giving assertive feedback, but you're walking a thin line between being assertive at the same time, not killing somebody's spirit. So being candid, but still encouraging versus, you know, letting them not get over a a kind of a negative feedback. So this ongoing conversations and our ability to build organizations where managers have the right support to continue to do that on a daily basis for individuals who they are responsible for is extremely critical. And in our world, based on all the data that we see, the biggest lever organizations have to drive their performance forward is this person that they call the manager. We have found that about 70% of variance in performance between teams can be explained by this one person you call manager. So you can make or break your organization if you're not focusing on this extremely important change agent in the system.
1: Yeah, there's that phrase, people don't quit their job, they quit their manager.
2: We had to spend a million dollars to just prove that adage right. So you are right.
1: (laughs) Are people switching their field as part of the great resignation or are they just quitting their manager, quitting their job and then going and finding another job in the same discipline?
2: So it's both. So coming about quitting their field, yes, because... There are more opportunities in the market that there have been for some time. We are hoping that we can put a pandemic behind us and put it in the history books. For example, think about you know, healthcare industry. The non-clinical staff in healthcare industry are getting poached by every other industry right now because they have figured out that you know a lot of them may want to quit it. It's, it's more difficult than they imagined it. Maybe it was not what they wanted to do. Maybe pay was a concern. So they are doing that. A lot of individuals who were in retail jobs in the past where compensation was an issue, I mentioned about the hourly workers whose hourly rates were kind of too low to have a living wage. They are looking for opportunities to go to other industries where they get paid better and have better benefits because of the opportunities in the market. So one is that. The other is, you know, think about somebody who's in a certain industry and thinks that technology or cybersecurity is the future. So can I invest in learning and try and make a move there? Because there are more jobs in those industries than people. So organizations are willing to train and get people through. Then there's definitely this third bucket where I don't like where I work and I cannot even imagine being in a job that you don't enjoy. I mean, it's a lot of hard work and a lot of hours. I I don't know how people can do it if you don't like it. The only way I can do it is I love what I do. So there's definitely that piece. So it's a mix of all those three from where I see it, Aaron.
0: Looking at your article, The Great Resignation, it doesn't look like the disengagement numbers have actually shifted all that much from pre-pandemic levels. Do you think the pandemic has merely given people the pause they needed to step back, reconsider, and find the courage
2: to make a major job change? That has definitely a role to play. So the intention to keep looking out for the job hasn't changed in dramatic way. It has changed somewhat, but the change hasn't been that dramatic. So people's ability to find opportunities, to sit back and reflect about what they really want to do and what energizes them to ensure that they are able to have that pause to refocus what they want to be doing for the rest of their lives.
3: It's sort of a sad commentary on society that when we all had a little time to pause and reflect, it seems like many people realized they kind of hated their job and were really unhappy and they just needed that moment. Is there anything in your data sets from Gallup that sort of uncovered that or that speaks a little bit about the discontent of the greater population?
2: To that, I would say that organizations, to some extent, have failed in the corporate world to provide that. We all know that the first step for anyone to be liking their job and being good at what their job is to be in the right job. I mean, is this the right job for who I am? So ensuring that people are in the right jobs. And then for organization to inspire the purpose of why we exist. For the organization to have the values that connect to the individual. For organization to invest in employee experience and giving them the right manager, giving them the right coaching, giving them the right development, caring about them as a whole individual about their well-being. Gone are the times when you can say that all you need is our hands to come and put some car together. You know, you don't check out your whole individualism when you entered the office doors. The fact is you are a person and our work life is so integrated these days that to say that I don't care about your overall well-being is the biggest mistake you can make. Organizations have a huge impact on the experience and the well-being of an individual and shown that it is delivered. One thing I'll mention is both employee experience and well-being are very individualistic in nature. And when I tell you that you have to meet each person where they are, as an organization, you can just be you know, paralyzed. How am I going to reach each individual? Is that even possible? I have 10,000 people working for me. But the fact is, that is why you have the managers, the critical change agent in the system, because there are ways you can reach each individual through the manager. So it's all about you know, the good old things that we spoke about in the past, which were all aspirationals. They have now become table stakes. Having the right purpose, the right values, connecting the individuals, putting them in the right jobs, you know, ensuring their strengths are used in the way that we can maximize their potential, ensuring that their well-being is taken care of. And in the process of doing this, you're also creating happy customers. You know, it's not just get work done, it's get people done through work. It's about ensuring that individuals are making a contribution to the world around us.
3: Yeah, I'm sort of curious, because I read a lot of Gallup data, actually, and there's some really amazing studies you guys do about the decline of religion in America. And of course, there's this theme dating back before Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone. There's sort of the societal breakdown in community and belonging. And listening to you talk about workplaces, it seems like there's an awful lot of pressure for workplaces to be these all-encompassing, emotionally fulfilling, sort of single-entity organizations that's not really consistent with their mission of being frankly for-profit capitalist enterprises. So, do you have some thoughts about the intersection of these different large-scale systems in our society? Again, sort of there's there's civic organizations, there's religion, there's work, and it seems like the power balance and intersection between those things is shifting dramatically really quickly
2: i have noticed the change personally in society on those levels as well bob so think about the human need of belonging we all need to belong to something which is larger than us it could be the religion it could be the organization it could be your society it could be your cul-de-sac i you know just we all have the need to belong to something bigger than us now workplaces do play a role in that simply because of amount of waking time people spend at workplaces. A lot of people listening to this call may have 24-7 jobs, right? I mean, they work for 10 hours a day, but the rest of the time, they're still thinking about the work-related stuff. So the fact is that the organizations need to build that connections. And I'm not saying it should be the only place to belong, but it's definitely a significant place that we should belong because of the amount of time we spend there and if these bonds of human connection weaken you will have a very high attrition which you are seeing around because the connections and as you know we can talk about how there's a lot of move to work from home and you know mostly remote these connections are weakening as we go along but unless we can make those connections stronger to why we exist we will have strong turnover. Now, I'll say two things. One is the capitalistic economy is not at opposition of belongingness. Actually, they work very well together, right? I mean, if you're all aligned, it actually can solve both purposes. The second thing I'll mention is the cost of attrition is rather high. It costs about half to two times a person's salary to lose this person, if you want to build a sustainably growing organization, you know these kind of costs, both in cash and kind, because you know by the time those handover takeover happens and their missed opportunities adds up to a big number, organizations cannot sustainably grow if they are dealing with significant turnover. Uh, just to give another data point, point, two point seven percent people quit in the month of July in the U.S. If you multiply two point seven by twelve that's more than 30%. Can you imagine running your organization when 30% people are quitting every year? It just cannot work and we'll be less effective. And I'm also a big believer, Bob, in organizations doing well, that helps our societies do well, that help our countries do well, that helps the world do well. And growing GDP helps alleviate so many stresses for different people across the world. So I do see the connection between organizations doing well, which is good for the world.
0: Do you think that a lot of this is an American issue right now versus a world issue? Because it's so culturally appropriate to work so much, you know, much more than it is in in Europe and other areas. Do you think that's part of the reason why people are resigning so much is because they're kind of over that mentality?
2: So you are absolutely right. This is a U.S. issue right now. So Great Resignation is a U.S.-centric issue. In my discussions with CHROs of large organizations, I speak to tens of them every month. And I have understood from that discussion that after U.S., it's India. And then to a small extent, it's Australia. But it is majorly U.S. You're right. You're also right that U.S. way of life is work centric, which is not European way, right? Traditional French way of working is so different from a US way of thinking about work. However, it has also been responsible for US being the number one country in the world for the longest period of time. That is to do with our dedication to grow organizations, to be entrepreneurial, to maximize work that helps our society in our country. So there is a way, but it's always important to balance. And obviously, we don't have to go to an extreme because stress leads to burnout. And so when you are totally emotionally committed to work, and you are stressed, your likelihood to burnout is much, much higher. So We all know burnout is not good for anybody. It's not sustainable. It doesn't do well for our customers. And we should be worried about burnout just as much as we are worried about financial and health issues. It's just an important thing to manage. So we have to ensure that it's done in a balanced fashion, which is sustainable. And mental health issues are increasing at at too high rates, and we can't afford that. So again, organizations have the responsibility that we do our work well while ensuring we are thriving in all parts of our lives, not just in our careers, because unidirectional and one-sided and is not effective.
0: I feel that you saying that it's like good in theory, but how do you actually put that into practice, especially as we are balancing working from home now, right? Like you don't have that commute. You don't have that mental gap between leaving your house and going to work and having that downtime, so to speak, or you don't have that structure where you get into work and maybe you check emails for an hour and then start going to meetings. Now it's kind of like you wake up, you respond into emails, you're on Zoom calls, and then you can maybe take a 6 p.m. meeting because you don't have to commute. So it's kind of expected of you. Do you think that's adding? I mean, I-, I personally think it's adding to the burnout. I don't know if you have any data on that, but have you heard about what companies are doing to try to address that issue?
2: Pre-pandemic, only 5% of the population worked exclusively from home. That number today is 20%. That's four times more. The other data point I want you to be aware of is we measure something called employee engagement, which is the emotional connection that I was referring to earlier with workplaces. And if you're engaged, you know, you enjoy the work and you do well and all the good things happen. You're more innovative, you're more resilient. What we found out that if you work from home two to three days a week and the rest of the time you work from an office, it's the best combination of having the connection and the flexibility, and the well-being, and the distraction, and the collaboration to opportunity. So it's kind of a best of both worlds. And the reason I gave you these two data points is, if you think about it, four times more people are now exclusively working from home, and how they deal with working from home can be very individual in nature. There are some people who would come into the office at nine o'clock in their day and finish at six, and able to do that. Others do, like you just said, I'm not commuting, might as well take a 6 a.m. call. It is incumbent upon two things. One is the role and one is the individual. One is the role. What does the role expect out of me? You know, does it expect nine to five or it has an outcome I need to deliver anytime, working anywhere? So the type of the role, you know, is it individualistic? Is it collaborative? How do I work around what outcomes expected of me? So that's a type of role. The other piece is me as an individual, what works for me, right? Maybe it works for me to work at 6 a.m. And there are days I wake up at 4 a.m. And by the 9 a.m. I have done five hours of work and I feel top of the world in control of the world. And I'm okay with that. But some may not be. So it's about the individual dealing with these opportunities of balancing work and life. And there are many online resources these days which are all available at your fingertips to see what works for you. I mean, there are some people who need to wear a proper office dress to get onto Zoom. Others like me are just okay with my usual shots that I'm just glad you cannot see right now. So (laughs) the point is that it's individual and it's role specific, and there are lots of inputs available for us to for each of us to reach our work-life balance in the most effective way.
0: And that also kind of ties back to what we were talking about earlier with the manager, right? Is you need these good managers in place to be able to empower your employees and get good work out of them. And I think now with this shift to working at home or more so potentially working from home more often, once this you know, pandemic goes away, it's kind of the responsibility of the manager to set those expectations, right? And to be a good manager and to make sure that you're empowering your individuals to be able to have that work-life balance and set the tone for what works best for them, right?
2: And pandemic actually gave us the opportunity to trust people blindly because we didn't have a choice, right? Pandemic didn't come with a playbook. We were scrambling around trying to figure out how to make this work. And we had no option but to just send people home and hope that they did well. And guess what? Most of them did very well. Individuals rallied and they came together and they delivered. And in many ways, the request for working more remotely is now a more earned request because they have proven that they can do this and they can do this well. The only idea is to balance the two because working from home with extended periods of time are likely to weaken the bonds we have. And, you know, it's important that we are working on it with intentionality. Although people have earned the right to work from home, but how do we balance with intentionality the connections, the collaboration, the creativity, you know, what's our culture, what's valued, what's not at a distance. So these are new challenges that the evolving workplace has uh, brought our way that we have to effectively deal with.
1: And yet there's something really advantageous of being remote that I feel like the pandemic sort of brought our attention to, which is, you know, I worked in an office for eight years with colleagues, same colleagues, and I never like knew the names of their children, never met their spouse. And now they walk into the room. My kids sometimes walk into the room like in their underwear and say hello to colleagues (laughs) of mine, you know? So we know each other in a way that we haven't before, which is kind of a magical thing and a great opportunity with this. I'm curious, of all the changes, I love that you pointed out that trust is a byproduct of working remotely. What are the permanent changes that we'll see going forward in the next, you know, three to five years having gone through this pandemic together?
2: I would say it is... We have to ensure that we are setting expectations most effectively of what the work expectations are. Job descriptions and MBOs are not enough. It's about clarifying with the changing scenario what is expected. The second piece is about coaching. I mentioned the importance of continuously providing ongoing conversations and ongoing feedback based on what's working, what's not working, how do individuals develop. And the third piece, and it kind of puts the puzzle together, is driving accountability. Because what remote work has exposed to us that our management practices are so outdated and they're actually built for the manufacturing plants in 1960s and 70s, which have stopped existing for decades and more. Performance is not managed through uh, forms that we fill at the end of the year, some hotel room trying to fill 25 forms for somebody's performance. It's about how do you manage it proactively on an ongoing basis and driving accountability through it. So this outdated practice of management has lived its life. We don't have an option. People aren't going to have remote. There's going to be more hybrid in the future. Nobody's questioning that. How do we ensure that we are judging the performance in the most effective way? You can never do what you did in the past that Sometimes, you know, people who were out of sight, out of mind, right? I mean, there were no connections. They were kind of ignored. Now you have to proactively figure out how trust is built. A lot of times I feel, Aaron, that, you know, we were able to get through the last year and a half, 18 months of pandemic because of the trust we had built pre-pandemic, right? You know, we, we kind of used the brownie points from the past to go on to that. Can you imagine building those relationships with the new people onboarded during the pandemic. We all know that people who join companies during pandemic are much more likely to have quit than the other people because they couldn't build those connections. So now that people are remote, how do you ensure that with intentionality, you're driving those experiences, knowing what is important and going away from, you know, Uh, people you meet the most are the people you work with the most versus opening up. The other benefit I'll say, Aaron, about Zoom calls is also it kind of made us getting exposed to individuals we wouldn't have otherwise exposed to, right? I only work with the DC office mostly because that's where I spend most time. Now, everybody's on the screen, whether they're in DC or Los Angeles. So now everybody's on the same playing field. So how do we ensure that we are making the most of equities as we go along in this time and how we do performance in a more effective fashion which has got nothing to do with the presence or absence of a person in an office premises. I think it's a change that we live through over the next five and 10 years. And we all know the importance of performance. You know, if we can't manage the performance, how will organizations do well? So this is a mega change I see coming out of this remote work and it's high time. We were anyway managing for the 60s and 70s. So I'm glad that we have evolved to where we are today.
0: Yeah,
3: it's going to be an interesting, as you mentioned, like five to 10 years. I think it might be longer than that. Listening to you talk, there's so many different threads that seem to me somewhat in conflict with one another. So like being a manager and having to give lots of feedback and coaching and coaching requires you to understand the person in a pretty deep and intimate way. And it, as you noted, like that's hard to do with new employees. It's hard to develop that. You know, we know companies are trying to retain people for longer because it's so expensive to have turnover. But yet, as employees, we hear, "Oh, you're going to have two, three, four, five careers over the course of your life." You know, n- not to mention even more jobs than that. So, I think from the employee perspective, and certainly for millennials and Gen Z, I don't think many of them are thinking they're going to be in a company for even five years, much less ten or twenty. So it seems like employees and employers, or maybe it's slightly cross purposes there. And then economically, I also think we're at this weird point where it's true there are lots of jobs, but they're not necessarily jobs that people want. And so, in other economic papers, you know, I've read about sort of this divergent split, and that there's going to be high in demand employees that are going to be work from anywhere, and they're going to get these high wage jobs, and it's going to be more challenging for people that don't have that.
2: So I just want to add to that. Bob is actually it's not as conflicting, maybe because I didn't explain myself effectively yeah. enough. What has to be more intentional about building individual relationships? Like the manager in the past had opportunity to meet people in the water cooler or, you know, in the restroom or in the restaurant close to the office. Now those opportunities don't exist. Mm-hmm. So yes, unless you are intentional about building those relationships, it would be tough for you, but it can be done if it is focused on. The other thing is that you're right. You know, maybe, the, not maybe, I know the younger generation, the likelihood to stay for 20 years is very less. But the question is, do we want them to stay for six months or do we want them to stay for three to five years, right? So even to retain them for three to four years, you would have to invest in their development because I mentioned multiple times, development is the number one driver of engagement. And to that, I'll add, flexibility is the number one benefits that employees are seeking today. So organizations who want to ignore those two facts have to do that at their own cost. This is how it is. And work from home can be a highly engaging experience if you're intentional about the connections we are trying to build, we are intentional about what's the value proposition of someone coming to the office. Even why should we come to the office? Gone are the world where you can tell people, okay, Delta is over, come back to the office. That's not the world we live in anymore. We have to explain and bring people along and get a buy-in for the value that on-site togetherness offers and how we can maximize that in a coordinated way just to let you know, a latest study that's not even released yet actually says that four in 10 employees who want work from home opportunities, want it to be within their autonomy. So they want to know that I'll decide when I come to the office. That's four in 10. Six in 10 believe that there should be some coordinated way of coming back to the office. But the challenge that we have as organizations yet to solve is nobody agrees on what's that coordinated way of coming back to the office, right? We leave articles where some organizations say come Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, some say come Wednesday, Friday, but nobody's happy about what the coordinated effort is. Although majority understands that coordinated may be better than completely autonomous because I may go to the office and nobody else may be there. So now I wasted my commute coming here.
0: How has the shift to remote work altered the attractiveness and value prop of being located in a major city, both from the worker and from the employer?
2: So from the employer's point of view, you know, this is still an unfolding situation. You know, I mean, when you hear people talking about what the future is going to be, if it's a real estate person or person interested in real estate, they say everybody's coming back to the office. If there's somebody else who says, oh, oh, that's never going to be the same. In our experience, we have seen that before Delta struck, and organizations opened the offices for people to come back, only 10% people on average showed up. So we know that people coming back to the office is not as attractive as it was in the past. Now, what organizations are right now considering is what is the purpose of your office? I mean, is your office really the place to invite your customers to? Is it a place where you gather on important location Is it a place that is conducive to collaboration opportunities? Is there a way to get technology to kind of figure out how you can do uh, blended meetings with some people on site, some not on site? So the purpose of the office is being reconsidered. This is still an unfolding situation. I think everybody will agree that it's not going to be the same. It's going to be different and how different we are yet to see. From the employee's perspective, we are seeing a significant percentage trying to figure out if they want to move away from the city center, move to larger homes or get closer to their family. A significant percent of people are making those decisions. Companies have to also think about, you know, we read a lot about how some organizations are saying, doesn't matter where you live, you have the same pay. And there are others who are saying, no, if you live in Seattle or New York, you cannot get those salary if you decide to move to D.C. or somewhere else, even in the countryside. So, Still unfolding, I guess we are still figuring this out for organization, what's the value prop of the office and for individuals about what we prefer. uh, Some percentage of individuals have felt that they would like to go back to their families and be close to them. And a lot of them are taking decisions alongside that. Big, large companies, there'll be some companies in every industry that probably are the best paymasters and best developers, which can demand people that don't move. But if you're an up-and-coming company who wants to attract talent, you have limited flexibility and you would like to have the talent wherever they are. So I guess it depends on your positioning today and what's your aspirational positioning as you go along. So this is all an unfolding situation. Now.
1: You've got such a great macroscopic view of what's happening right now, and it's a very dynamic situation. What advice do you have for the individual, for the person who is in that position that might be high stress and now they've come to the realization that it's more than they can bear any longer? Or maybe their value system has been shaken up by taking a pause and rethinking what they want in their life. They're thinking about what's next in their career. What advice do you have taking into account the big picture of what's happening, but also the many individuals that you've talked to as well who've gone through a transformation right now?
2: I would say a couple of things from my own personal experience. First is you are the hero of your life and you build the life that you want and no one else but you would decide what that future looks like. So I think we should welcome the pause, you know, the ability to reflect and making decisions on what is it that we want. The second thing I would say is what my father always says, there's nothing more important than health. And if there is a situation which is making you stressed and burnt out, it's not good for you and it's not good for your family and it's for everybody who loves you. This is not a sustainable situation and you need to prioritize your health over everything else. So take the pause, put yourself in the center, look forward, make the decisions. And sometimes the decisions may be right, sometimes they may be wrong. But you've got to try and, and make the change and build the life that you will feel fulfilled living
3: in. thank you so much for being with us. I have one last question for you. This was such an interesting and illuminating and inspiring conversation, both for me as an individual, but also, frankly, as a parent and you know as a manager. I've personally just taken away a ton of stuff that I'm going to go talk to my work colleagues about as soon as we're done here. <laughs> but I have one last question for you which we like to ask our guests is, you know, if you could, I'd like you to just sort of imagine yourself at 25. If you could kind of bring forward, you know, Vipula at 25. And I'm wondering if you were to sit down with her and hang out for a little bit, and you asked her for advice for who you are today. What kind of advice do you think your 25 year old self would offer your current self?
2: You know, thank you for that question. But I have to tell you that I have thought about it. So this is not, you know, I have been reflecting on that as what would I tell myself, having worked in three very different industries, I was a corporate banker, I was a hotelier, now I run a consulting business. And having lived in five countries all the way from UK to Dubai to UAE to Singapore, India, and here, I would tell myself that don't take life too seriously, it'll all work out. (laughs) You know, it all works out in the end. And if we hadn't worked out yet, it's not the end. So carry on and things will fall into place. Do your job well, because all those experiences that we gather in our 20s and 30s, they all come handy as we do new and innovative things. And somebody somewhere has a bigger plan. So just do the right work. Don't take life too seriously.
3: Is that what your current self would tell your younger self? Or is that what your younger self would tell your current self?
2: This is what my present self will tell my 25. I was a pretty uh, high-strung, committed, driven 25-year-old. And I should have taken life a little bit easy is what I think. But that's my story. And I keep saying it's so individual because there can be somebody who in their 20s was kind of easygoing. I was anything but easygoing.
1: Where can people learn more about you and your work?
2: Gallup.com. Gallup is a standards, advisory, and analytics firm. We work with organizations and help them build performance cultures. And we work with organizations like United Nations, World Bank, ILO, and others to make progress on SDGs. So we are a very mission-oriented organization. We want to build standards for work and life. We want to fix the world's broken workplaces. And we do that through building strengths-based cultures. So com is your place and I'm always happy to hear from you on LinkedIn, on my email or anywhere else.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to be here. It was absolutely wonderful.
2: Thank you for listening.
1: Wow. where <laughs> to start. That was a lot of territory that she covered there. And I just found it so luxurious to talk to someone who really gets the big picture of what we've been through collectively in the past year and a half, has a lot of data to frame it for us, but also like is in touch with the human story here of the individuals who are struggling at work, stressed, rethinking what's next. I found that very personally helpful and validating.
0: Yeah. I mean, she's going through it too herself, right? Right. Yeah. She's dealing with work-life balance, how to show up.
1: Wearing shorts. Yeah. Mm-hmm, wearing shorts.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was nice. <laughs> it was refreshing for sure. I mean, there's so many things you can take away from this, but just looking at the big picture is that the pandemic really did change everything. It made us really reevaluate our lives, but also reevaluate what is important in the workforce and how we're going to move forward. And, you know, how companies are going to change, how we're going to change. And I think what's really exciting is that while she gave us so much data now, is it's constantly going to be changing in the future. And so I think it's going to be interesting to maybe touch base and check in with her just to see how things are going, because I don't think we can predict it.
3: Yeah, I found some of her stuff about the shifts in the workplace and employee engagement was interesting because she talked about it through this generational shift which, you know, all of us having worked in companies where we've been working with millennials or Gen Z and Gen X as we all are, you know, you could kind of sense that generational shift, but it feels like the pandemic was just this massive accelerant. And it's sort of unusual the baby boomers have been able to stay such a dominant force for so long. It's mm-hmm. kind of a testament to longevity, I think, as much as anything. And it gets easy to kind of attribute a lot of the shifts to the pandemic. But listening to her, I feel like it's more of a generational shift that's been, again, accelerated by the pandemic rather than specific reaction to the pandemic itself. She talked about this need for continuous feedback, and it's an interesting byproduct of being a digital native and being able to solicit ongoing feedback. That technology didn't exist before, so that desire for continuous feedback, which is actually central to the growth mindset, which is something I think all of us aspire to have,
1: that just couldn't really exist before there was digital tools. Interesting to hear her say that she personally felt like she had adopted some of the value systems or the perspectives of a different generation, the millennial generation, when just a few years ago, there were so many articles out there, you know, workplaces trying to figure out the millennials and kind of denigrating millennials as like needing too much coddling and support. And now, you know, we kind of look at that through the lens of the stress and uncertainty of the pandemic very differently, that maybe there's a good value system that we could all kind of learn something from this other generation.
0: So true. Also, managers and the importance of how important managers are, either being one or having one. And I think people like you really need to step up to the plate now and either ask your manager what good feedback looks like, or if you're a manager, make sure that you are responsible enough to give that feedback and to recognize how to retain your employees. I think it's kind of going to be front and center for a little while, if not longer.
3: Yeah, it certainly made me rethink my role as a manager at my current company. And I've sort of realized the importance of trying to develop the team, but I don't think I'd had the foundation of understanding why that was important and how central it is probably to my team's engagement. You know, she had that quote about development is the number one driver of employee engagement. That's a very powerful fact Mm -hmm. that I'm not sure many companies have really internalized.
0: Yeah. I think the other interesting thing that she said was the pandemic didn't come with a playbook and that people needed to trust other people blindly to get things done and they were forced to do it. And as a result of that, it worked. Totally. We're still effective. Things didn't fall apart.
1: And why did it take a pandemic for us to trust exactly. the people we work with? You know, it's not like we have to lord over people to double check their work and make sure that they're doing everything like you hire great people and you communicate clearly regularly, you can give them plenty of space to do work on their own terms. Yeah, I think it's vestigial from this factory
3: mentality. In the same way that our school system is designed around an agricultural economy where the kids needed the summer off to go help on the farm, that idea is obviously not relevant anymore. Our workplace expectations have been based on factories where you had to coordinate work so you could take advantage of the capital investment in the equipment. That idea doesn't matter anymore. Like we seem to be having trouble shedding these outdated modes of operation that are completely irrelevant as the economy moves again from kind of agriculture to industrial to knowledge.
1: I was also struck by how she summed up something that I've already kind of seen and, and felt in certain experiences through the pandemic over the past year and a half, that everyone was feeling financial safety and health anxiety rolled into one that is so much for individuals for families and to think that like nations and the world like this is the collective feeling over the past year and a half
3: well then you supercharge that with this american work ethic you Mm -hmm. know and and uh, isolationism of modern american life where we're all expecting so much emotional fulfillment from our workplace and then your workplace gets totally upset or gets totally transformed it's a lot to go through
0: It's not surprising that this is predominantly an American issue, as she called out, but it does take a second to reflect on that and realize, how can we shift that? How can we change that mentality?
1: And that relates to another thing she said, that for many, flexibility is a premium now, like having that flexibility of time off or, you know, I'm hearing a lot of people trying to do more part-time work to just have that flexibility of when they need to ramp up and earn more money or they need to ramp down and have more time to pursue their interests or just take a break and recharge, spend time with family. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people out there that are reconsidering.
0: They sure are.
1: (laughs) I see what you did there, Bob. I really loved when she said, you are the hero of your life. Mm. I think that is just such a great simple reminder that we can carry with us day to day. You're the hero of your life. You can choose. You can choose what's the right path for you. And part of knowing what the right path is, is just tuning in and paying attention when it's too much, when you don't have all of what you need, you're missing some balance in your life. You're the hero of your life and you can make the choice to make a change. reconsidering is created by meredith blackbrandt bob baxley and aaron walter with editing help from brian paik of pacific audio original music for the show was written and performed by Kimo maraki you'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org if you've enjoyed the episode hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player and if you'd like to support what we're doing We'd be grateful if you'd leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. It'll help others discover the show. Until next time, remember life like the seasons is ever-changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in.